The gospel lesson for the uh, 24th Sunday after Pentecost comes from the gospel according to Matthew. That's chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. And this is on page 702 of the Pew Bible. In this gospel lesson, Jesus teaches that there is a right way and a wrong way to understand God, this life, and the judgment day. Please stand as you are able for the gospel. From Matthew 25, beginning at verse 14, we read in Jesus' name. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant! You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's unavoidable, the judgment of God, that is. It's not our favorite subject to talk about. It makes us sound mean and unloving. We don't like to think of God as a righteous judge who will condemn people to eternal destruction. I mean, maybe we're okay with the concept of hell, if it's only reserved for the devil, the demons, and maybe a few really awful people like Adolf Hitler, or people who do bad things to children. But to think of hell being populated by real people, even people that we know personally, that's a bit uncomfortable. But it's unavoidable. The Bible teaches the realities of judgment and hell and the wrath of God. We really can't avoid it. 
So this week, the lectionary wisely boxed us into a corner. If we don't like the weeping and gnashing of teeth of the gospel lesson, we look to the epistle lesson and find sudden destruction. And if we don't like that, we go to the Old Testament lesson and find punishment, wailing, plunder, demolition, bitter crying, wrath, distress, anguish, trouble, ruin, darkness, gloom, clouds, and blackness. And all of it at the hands of God. We have nowhere to go. We're going to have to deal with it. And I don't mean that we're going to have to deal with it in just some theoretical way. Like, it might happen to other people, but we are exempt from any danger. Jesus teaches this parable to his disciples. It's not directed against the wicked Pharisees. They're not even there. It's a warning for Christians. In fact, all three of the parables in Matthew 25 do this same thing. In each parable, it's people who, you know, they they look like they're ready, or, or they might even be called servants of the master who are left in outer darkness. And it's those who think they have done what is necessary who are cast into eternal punishment. These are warnings to Christians. They should cause us to examine ourselves and see if we might be the hypocrites. Because it is someone. And, and the thing about hypocrites is that they might not always know they are hypocrites. The purpose of these parables is not to make us look around and think, well, oh, I wonder which of these people will be cast into outer darkness. Instead, they should make us ask, is it I, Lord? That's really the point. Jesus begins this parable by linking it to the previous one, where he concluded by saying, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now he tells another parable with the same point. That day will be like a master returning to settle accounts with his servants. He entrusted to them his property, and now he returns to see what they have done with it. The servants don't know when the master will return, so they are simply called to be faithful with what was entrusted to them during the interim. Now, the master in the parable is, of course, Jesus. And the servants are his disciples. Not just the twelve, but all of his disciples throughout the history of the church. So this includes you and me. And he entrusts to them his property. Now, he apportions it differently uh, to each one based on their ability. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one talent. Now, a talent was quite a bit of money. It was worth about 20 years' wages. That's a lot. So for the servant who received five talents, that would come out to about 100 years' wages. Even the servant who got just one received a large sum. The master is entrusting these servants with quite a bit. Now, at first glance, it might seem like the master is a little bit unfair, like he's discriminating between his servants. Now, he is making a distinction between them. But he's not unfair. It's his property. He can do with it what he wants. And he's really being gracious to his servants. He doesn't give them more than what they can handle. And he doesn't give them less. He gives to each of them the right amount. Now, probably the most common interpretation of the talents is that they represent uh, spiritual gifts that God gives to us. The idea is that God gives each of us certain gifts or abilities that are to be used for the work of his kingdom. And that much is true. God does do that. Some gifts seem more spiritual, while others seem more ordinary. But they're all gifts from God. 
and they are all to be used for the building up of the church. Now, this could be what the talents represent, but, but Jesus, he doesn't tell us exactly what they represent. And, and the talents aren't really the point of the parable. The point has to do with faithfulness and what we've been given. So I think it's, it's probably better to understand them more broadly as everything God entrusts to us. And this includes our spiritual gifts, but also our families, our property, our jobs, and all our responsibilities. It includes God's word and sacraments, and even this creation, the earth, which God placed under the care of our first parents. As we await our master's return, we are to be faithful in everything he has given us. Now, in the parable, two servants are faithful, while the other is wicked and lazy. The difference among the three servants really has to do with their understanding of the master. The first two servants, they understand their master to be kind and generous. I'll explain that more in a moment. So they acted under the impression that the master is kind and generous, and in the end, he turned out to be exactly that. But the third servant was afraid of the master. He understood him to be a hard man, and he acted accordingly. Out of fear, he buried the talent in the ground. That way, at least he wouldn't lose it, right? But that's not what the master wanted him to do with it. So in the end, the servant found the master to be the hard man he expected. All three of the servants, they really found the master to be exactly who they thought he was. Now, this doesn't mean that God is just whoever we think he is. God is who he is, regardless of who we think he is. But the point is, to those who trust in his grace on account of Jesus Christ, God is gracious. And to all who disregard Christ and expect to be judged by our performances, that, unfortunately, is exactly what will happen. So all three of the servants, they meet uh, the master they expect. The first two servants understand the master to be kind and generous. And that's why they acted faithfully with what their master gave them. They understood the talents not to be a deposit, but a gift. And this is the surprise of the parable. At least most of Jesus' parables seem to have these surprises in them. The character who represents God almost always does something unexpected. So think about this with me. When a master gives a massive amount of money to his servants and says, I'll be, I'll be back, we expect that his return is for the purpose of collecting on his investment, right? That's what we would expect, but that's not what the master does. Read the text carefully, and the two faithful servants, they know this, but the third servant doesn't. So when the master returns, the third servant digs up the one talent, and brings it back, he says, here, you have what is yours, take it. But he's the only servant who does that. He's the only one that tries to give it back. The two faithful servants, they show the master what they did, but they don't offer it back to the master. And the master doesn't ask for it. Now, some translations might have the word here. The servant says, here, I have made five talents more. And I really don't know why they translate it that way, because that's not the word. It kind of makes it sound like the servants are giving the money back, but they're not. The word is really see or behold. The servants say, look, I've made five more, or look, I made two more. They show the master what they did, but they don't try to give it back, and the master doesn't want it back. 
So we notice at the end, the servant who had the ten talents, he still has all ten of them. The master never even took a dime back from the faithful servants. Instead of coming to collect from his servants, the master comes back to reward them and give them even more. And this is the surprise. It's not what we would expect a master to do. Maybe he gives the servants a commission on the profits. So when one servant earns five more talents, we might expect the master to let the servant keep one or two as a commission. And perhaps, maybe, just maybe, an incredibly gracious and generous master would let a servant keep all five of the profit, but not all ten. I mean, no wise master would let the servant keep the initial investment, too. That's not a good way to make money. But that's what the master does. The one servant keeps all ten of them, and the other keeps all four. That's because the initial investment was not an investment. It was a gift. And that's why they were faithful with it. Instead of dreading the day the master would return and ask for his money back, they used it like it was their own. And this is exactly what the master intended. So they don't try to give it back, and the master doesn't ask for it back. In fact, he piles on higher and higher. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now think of those those last glorious and gracious words. Enter into the joy of your master. As if these ten or four talents aren't enough, the master now shares with them everything he has. He brings them into his house. It's all yours. My joy is your joy. My heaven is your heaven. This makes the the four talents and the ten talents, which are really quite a bit of money, it makes them seem like pennies in comparison to the uh, incredible riches of the master. So the two faithful servants, they understand their master to be kind and generous. So they see the master's property as a gift to them, and therefore they use it joyfully and faithfully. And in the end, they receive grace upon grace. Enter into the joy of your master. So the problem with the wicked and lazy servant was simply that he didn't recognize a gift to be a gift. He expected a collection, a reckoning, and that's what he got. His judgment was really the result of him rejecting the gift and even trying to give it back. So we learn from this parable that there is a wrong way and a right way to understand God, this life, and the judgment day. We could understand God to be a harsh judge. If we understand God to be a harsh judge, then this life is a test and the judgment day is a reckoning that will not go well for any of us. So if this is the case, well, then we should repent of our unbelief. And by repent, I simply mean trust in Jesus as the atonement for our sins. For as much as hell is a reality, the truth is Jesus has already dealt with it for us. That's what the whole God hanging, beaten, bloodied, humiliated, and dead on a Roman cross was all about. So if you think God wants to judge you harshly for your sins, there's just one question you're going to have to answer. What was Jesus doing on that cross? Because if he wasn't paying for your sins, then there really isn't a good explanation for why the Father would put his Son through that. Jesus on the cross is the sacrifice 
for your sins. And on account of this, God forgives you. So faith simply trusts that when God looks at us, he finds us to be righteous on account of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. This is God's gift to you. Now, to disbelieve this is to reject the gift. Unbelief is like burying it in the ground until the judgment day, digging it up and handing it back to God, saying, this isn't mine. If that's the case, you will find God to be the harsh judge you expect. So don't do that. That's the wrong way to understand God, this life, and the judgment day. The right way is to understand God to be a kind and generous master. If we understand God to be a kind and generous master, then this life and everything in it is a gift. And the judgment day is just more gift. So if this life is a gift, and it most certainly is, then we're not crippled by fear of what God is going to demand from us at the end. Instead, we are free to use and enjoy the good gifts he has given us. It's not freedom to abuse the gifts. That's not what they're for. That's called sin, abusing the gifts. But it is freedom to use and enjoy them faithfully and in service to our neighbors. We do this with confidence that when the master returns, he will welcome us into his eternal joy. If God were a harsh judge who demands from us a strict reckoning, we would all be found lacking. That's not the right way to understand God. We understand him to be generous and kind because he is on account of Jesus Christ. So we understand this life and everything we have in it to be a gift. And we understand the judgment day then to be just more gift. On that day, God will welcome us into the never-ending joy of our master. So we receive grace upon grace today and for all eternity. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.